Hey everyone, welcome to the Compass Podcast. I am Whit Gibbs, your host, and I am joined today by a friend, a colleague, someone I have a ton of respect for, Chris Dixon from CoinShares. I hope that you enjoyed this episode. If you do, please consider subscribing and leaving a review on your preferred listening platform. It really helps out the show. The Compass Podcast is presented commercial-free by Compass, the number one Bitcoin mining marketplace. If you want to get started mining Bitcoin, source hard-to-find ASICs, or find competitively priced hosting space, then check Compass out at compassmining.io. And now, on to the show. Chris, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's good to be back on here. I've, I've missed these conversations, you know? This is the only podcast I've been on. I, I Well, this is with you. It's twice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Last time we talked about the mining death spiral. Um, thankfully, that was, that was debunked Still with that podcast. Thing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> thankfully. Mining's more profitable than ever. But, you know, today we're going to talk about CT and the, I mean, that opus that they wrote. How, okay. First and foremost, how do I pronounce this gentleman's name? Is it Kiel, Kiel Roque? Um, yeah. I mean, so after we had a bit of a back and forward on Twitter on this, the first thing you have to understand is that Norwegian has about a bazillion different dialects. Some of, some of them are pretty much mutually unintelligible. Um, where he's from is like uh, an area of, of dialectal challenge, I'd say. Um, so one, one person did point out that, uh, and, and I do think he's right, some, some of the people around there uh, pronounce the KJ as you would in English pronounce uh, TCH. Some, Ch- it, it, it could, yeah, it could be considered correct to say Chell. <laughs> I wouldn't say that. I would say Chell. Um, but that sound doesn't exist in English, so it's very hard to uh, it's very hard to explain like how you would actually say it. And then other than that, like the rest of the name is is actually not that hard, except that you guys don't know how to roll your R's. So <laughs> his last name is Rökja. Yeah, so I, I butchered that one. Uh, yeah, oddly <laughs> enough, in a previous career, I did some work with Acker. The the fishing boats they had. Um, when I was in the marine industry, we did we had some contracts with them. So uh, yeah, it's it's cool to see him come into the fold. You just spoke with him recently, right? Uh, I spoke briefly with them, yeah, earlier this week. Cards very tight to the chest. Uh, sure, sure. What did you make of that letter? As as a Norwegian who's also a Bitcoiner, you read that like what's what's the first feeling? I mean, it was awesome. Not even taking any of that into account, I would still put that letter in like the top three bullish Bitcoin thesis letters I've ever read. And I, I mean, I do come across quite a few of these through my job. So what I found particularly refreshing about it was the new way that there were the new angles that they come at um, some of these issues and the novel way in, in which they explain things. Because I think in a lot of the industry, otherwise, it's kind of the same arguments over and over again, uh, slightly differently packed. And I felt like from these guys, there was almost like an entirely new angle and an entirely new ways of coming at it and explaining it. And I thought that was super cool. Uh, this letter is the only thing that has ever reverberated with like my family, for example. I sent it to them. That includes my own research, which they clearly don't like. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, hey, at least they understand that you're in Bitcoin. It's I'm still trying to figure out how to explain to my family what I do. Yeah. <laughs> It was 23 pages of incredibly bullish sentiment. You know, the, the biggest takeaway that I had from reading it was just that, that it was his view, Ocker's view, CT's view, that not having exposure to Bitcoin was the real threat. Mm. You know, it, being exposed to Bitcoin, having some exposure uh, is much less risky than being completely oblivious or ignoring the asset class altogether. And yeah. coming from him, I mean, he's clearly a business leader globally. I mean, you know, he is among the wealthiest people in the world. Uh, and certainly, you know, what, second in all of Norway. So for him to come out with that bullish of a stance, it's got it's 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 got to move the needle significantly for the entire country. I, th- I think it does. And but also, like, the thing about him is that he is the epitome of street smart. You know, he is he is like a hustler. I mean, think about how he made his fortune. He literally started from nothing. I don't even think he finished high school. Um, 
and he started he's the he's the ultimate entrepreneur started in the fishing industry built his way up and now owns one of the largest industrial conglomerates in the country. Well, the largest industrial conglomerate, probably. I can't really think of anyone that rivals. So, you know, whenever he comes out with this, considering his knack for reading trends and, and understanding like where industries are going, it should uh, open some eyes. And I think it does. And I think someone of his caliber coming out, saying the things that he did, at the very least, it makes it seem irresponsible to ignore it, which it is, as you said. At this point, I mean, we've crossed over, in at least my opinion, into the 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 risk threshold of well, it's now starting to become more risky to ignore mm-hmm. than to at least spend the time figure out how it works. You know, make an informed opinion instead of just hoping that it'll go away or like claiming that it's. And this is like shockingly common still in Norway, claiming that it's you know literally just speculative bubble with no use case and just used for criminals. I mean, yeah, it's, it's a Norwegian issue. Um, in a lot of things, like we tend to be many years behind everywhere else. I, I will agree with you on that point. I think one of the areas where you guys are not lagging behind the rest of the world is on being environmentally conscious. And I oh, think yeah. that, you know, when it comes lead to the world in, yeah. we lead the world in virtual signaling for sure. Like. <laughs> well, and to that point, I mean, especially of late, it seems like the, the biggest FUD or the, the low hanging fruit that a, a lot of the Bitcoin FUDers are reaching for right now is this idea that Bitcoin and specifically Bitcoin mining is damaging the environment. It's bad for uh, the world. It's negatively impacting global warming. Well, you know, fill in the dumb rant that people are using. Um, but by him taking the stance, I'm just going to refer to him as him the entire conversation because yes. I'm not going to try to butcher his name. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, you know, him taking the stance, being Norwegian, having a massive company in Norway, and presumably, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but, you know, if, if I have a big conglomerate like his in Norway, how involved is the government in my business? Is any aspect of it socialized? I would have to look this up, but it's quite common for the Norwegian government to have a sizable ownership position in not only necessarily through the um, through the uh, the pension fund, the the sovereign wealth fund. They obviously have ownership positions in every company. Uh, in that is listed in the world, but they also have outsized ownership positions in other companies that are uh, either legacy, fully government owned, uh, after which they've sold out successively. Um, that that would be the case with uh, with uh, Equinor, for example. It used to be wholly owned by the Norwegian government. Now I think they own fifty point one percent. You know the, the the same with uh, at Stotkraft, uh which is um, a large holder of hydro production assets. Um, they've owned the, the Norwegian government used to be a lot more socialist than it is right now, and and then it used to be super liberalist before that again. It goes back and forth <laughs> a lot, <laughs> a lot. <laughs> um, <laughs> they probably have some ownership stake. Um, so, but they they don't tend to get very involved from the ownership side, uh, and they're often critiqued for not being active enough as owners. Um, but obviously like, like any other government, they play in quite heavily in terms of the, their restrictions and regulations they put on you. Well, but in this case, so he comes out, he says that they're going to, you know, get exposure to Bitcoin. They're going to be mining with Blockstream. Did he just loop the Norwegian government into owning Bitcoin and, and mining at the same time? I mean, they already own Bitcoin and mine at the same time. Um, they, they took uh, they took that position in Crusoe, right, through Equinor last year. Through Equinor, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, I mean, they're they're already. I wouldn't say balls deep, but you know, ankle deep at least. <laughs> um, I mean, I've been saying for years that it, the Norwegian government. You know, as a small nation that heavily relies on how did you or we don't heavily heavily rely on it. In fact, we do the opposite. We're kind of like a 
a vassal state of the U.S. at this point, but um, it is in our interest to have a rules-based international society, right? That um, that works yeah. on on a predictable basis where no one has outsized power, right? Because as a small country, that means we have nothing. Um, so I've been in the, right. the opinion for for quite some time that it would be very prudent of Norway to have uh, an, a sizable Bitcoin position. But then if you, if you think about how the, uh, the bank of Nor- Norges Bank, the, the central bank of Norway sold their gold position uh, almost 20 years ago, that is clearly not a sentiment that is shared by uh, the people who control at least the, the currency itself. Um, which is a free-floating currency, by the way. It's not. Uh, it's not tied to the euro or anything. It's actually fully free-floating. Um, although it is is de facto linked to the oil price quite heavily. So, I think a Bitcoin position would be excellent yeah. for the Norwegian government, uh, and I, I think the sovereign wealth fund should, if they are not already considering it, they should definitely be considering it, even as a hedge. It's a pretty cheap hedge. Uh, considering their size for how many coins they would need, right? Even if they bought coins proportional to the mm-hmm. to the population of the country, they wouldn't even need that many out of out of the whole. It would be quite cheap. So I I always view I mean I always view Norway as a, a global leader when it comes to I mean I, I guess just for me like in all the places that I've traveled, um, it's really hard to beat. From an outsider's perspective, the way that Norway seems when you're there, right? I mean, when you're visiting from the outside, like let's say you go from New York to Oslo, okay? Mm-hmm. You get to Oslo, it's so clean. Everyone, I mean, it, it's a it's a very clean city. It's beautiful. Everything seems well kept. It looks like tax dollars are actually used for what they're supposed to be used for. Um, and then everyone seems to be happy and in a a fairly good financial place you know there's i'm sure disparity of wealth just like anywhere there's there's wealthy people and there's people who are less wealthy but the gap seems so much smaller it seems Mm -hmm. like the the playing field is is more level um so when i when i see norway with equinor and and now with ocker you know these companies that are taking positions I think it's, I mean, the bullish signal for me is that it's likely that other countries who look at Norway aspirationally will potentially follow suit, you know? Yeah, maybe I, I, I'm, maybe I just don't share your, your optimism for how, um, how up to speed the, the actual government is, uh, because they don't seem that up to speed. If you look at some of the decisions that they've been making and then reversing um the the electricity subsidy of a few years ago being being a big um being a big wake-up call there for me i mean some of the stuff that they they read on um in 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 the committees when they were discussing it it was it's just uh, i'm not even going to mention it because it's such outright nonsense completely discredited um stuff that you and i would think is like just outright stupid to bring up uh, and and they still did it. And you have political parties there. Guess which side they're on? Uh, who are completely railing again? They're 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 taking the the ESG bait hook, line, and sinker. Um, you know, calling for bans. This is still a reality in the political sphere there. And over this last year, there's I give it a zero percent chance that the government's even thought about this, considering what they've had like to deal with with the Rona and and all this crap. So I'm not as like bullish on the government itself, even understanding the magnitude here. Um, I think it's starting to dawn now on a bunch of individuals, and this will start spreading um, because the community isn't that big. Right. So when when enough people start mm-hmm. opening their eyes to this, I think the information will spread quite quickly. You know, one thing about Norwegians is that Norwegians, all of them, uh, there is at least uh, <laughs> there is uh, there is a very healthy common sense going around. Um, people will listen to arguments. They're not quite 
fully entrenched you know if you if you mm-hmm. make sense and you have a good argument like people will listen and like they'll change their minds and you know or they'll mumble and grumble and- wait i mean like like there's there's conversations everyone's not sitting firmly on one pole and not backing off of an opinion that's refreshing yeah i mean you know i'm not gonna give everyone that <laughs> that benefit of the doubt but it, it exists like i find the norwegian political conversation you know fairly sober it's not you know it's not screaming at the top of your lungs uh that's normally like the fringe parties uh that do that we also have a ton of parties so you know there's that um but i feel like this has the opportunity now to at least like i i don't expect or you know even hope for this like immediate political realignment or anything or or you know the mm-hmm. the curtains going up on everyone immediately i don't think that's going to happen but i think what this did uh, and the effect that it's going to have is that it will cause a bunch of people to go at the research with real curiosity and considering the wealth of information that is out there now and the succinctness of the arguments that the community has created as a whole with all that now in place this will shift things sure um in norway so but honestly i think it's other small countries that are going to be like my money would be on Singapore or Switzerland as like the archetypical country that would first announce like a, a position, like an outright position as part of their uh, FX basket. I don't, I don't see Norway doing that anytime soon. Although that would be awesome, and please do that if you're listening. It, it, it would be fantastic. The the most exciting thing as I'm looking at Norway is obviously you know from a mining perspective, it doesn't really get potential. any. Yeah, it doesn't really get any better. You've got the perfect climate, you've got access to energy, like abundance of energy, you know, and I know there are I mean, facilities expor- that are springing up all over. Yeah, we've been exporting energy for like a century now, um, mm-hmm. first through aluminum or, uh, you know, um, fertilizer or, yeah, yeah. Or, or whatever type of like electricity heavy export industry we could do i mean we've been doing that since hydropower was invented right because the hydropower potential is outrageous although probably most of the juiciest projects have already been built out and obviously the the environmental question of of hydro isn't pure like you have to ruin all of these like waterfalls um which isn't that great and um Unless you add a ton of costs, like you might ruin fish migrations. There's all sorts of like negative consequences um, to to building these projects out. So there probably isn't a ton of unbuilt capacity in that sense. But I mean, come on, look at that coastline and the potential for like like wind, like floating wind, like holy shit. And I think, and I mean. CT put this in their letter. Uh, didn't want to discuss it too much, but I feel like there is here is where like the real potential is for mining uh, is for for wind, right? Um, and right. as a general load balancing uh, mechanism. But if you're going to build out like a bunch of ocean wind um, and you know in Norwegian waters, like you need some way of dealing with the fluctuations and i mean we all know right. that bitcoin mining is perfect for this and and that's what i think Rukia has understood now as well and i think ct is is a part of this like overall strategy but that remains to be seen well, i was talking with melton about this yesterday when it comes to you know building more renewables you can't just immediately transition everything that's been using let's say fossil fuels to renewables there has to be something that bridges that gap there has to be some consumer of the energy that's newly created through these renewable sources like wind in the in the midterm so that you can utilize the energy that you're you're now scaling up while the the old energy source is still being used by wherever it was going if it's a town or a factory or whatever uh, and then you can transition away and you know in the states in Kentucky I think they're they're kind of front running this trend because they know that their biggest power uh, suppliers 
they have these you know zero emissions plans that they have to roll out by 2050. Well, in order for them to justify spending the you know millions and millions of dollars to build out this renewable these renewable energy sources, they have to justify that by you know making a profit or at least breaking even on that. And the only way they can mm-hmm. do that is if somebody's consuming that extra energy so that they can transition out of their existing capacity. Um, and you know that that is something where in Norway there's a ton of potential. You mentioned the coastline. You, I mean, there are. I mean, just since this announcement, we've had at least ten conversations with people who want to build facilities in Norway. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the biggest challenges that they face have nothing to do with where they're going to source their power, and everything to do with how that power is priced by the government. Right? It's that fluctuating scale and the rate you can lock into. But if you're able to get big enough, fast enough, you can get really competitive rates. Um, and you know, as we're looking at this like global race to scale hash rate within your borders, I think the the letter by CT was just. I mean, it was, it was firmly planting a flag to say that, you know, within Norway, there will be interest in people that want to move hash rate there. I really hope so. But I mean, so like the deal with Blockstream, though, I mean, are they just bridging a gap here? Like, do you think from your conversations that they're going to be opening an operation of their own? Carbs very tight to the chest. Okay. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure. I would suspect that they're, they're leaning on them initially for competence and... Uh, sure you know know how to probably work with them in the beginning um but like after a while you probably want your own operation i would think but you got to start from somewhere so again speculation now on the coin share side of things how did oh and maybe you can't share this now because you guys are publicly traded god how that (laughs) changes the dynamic of everything right um (laughs) but on the on the institutional side when a letter like that from ct comes out how does that change what's going on in the day-to-day for you guys at CoinShares? Well, it's similar to when, when great stuff comes out of other outfits, right? And there's been a few of these like really excellent works lately. You know, you had the, you had the, the letter from Fidelity mm-hmm. um, from their head of, uh, was it Global Macro Strategy? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, his letter was excellent, right? Same with Stone Ridge. Um, there's been a bunch of, of these, well, not, there's been a few and with each incremental addition to the, the canon, if you will, uh, it just adds like intellectual firepower to our overall arguments. So it is very helpful. And, but that's what I was talking a little bit about at the very beginning is that the, the letter from Siti, I think was particularly interesting because it went down some new and different avenues and explored a couple different angles and explained things differently. And we need that as well. So that we're not just like rehashing the same arguments like over and over. They need to be stated differently. They need to be come at from different angles. This is part of why I, I thought theirs was particularly refreshing. But so was the Fidelity one, honestly, and the Stone Ridge one. <laughs> I mean, we kind of live in an echo chamber when it comes to like Bitcoin, Twitter and the people we talk to on a regular basis, right? And uh, to have all of these affirmations for the way that we've been thinking for years is great. But you're right, you know, you get two or three of the exact same thing put out. And now all of a sudden, the next one loses credibility if it follows suit, because it's just parroting what was already said. There's not really any additional validation. You're not going to win the hearts and minds of any more people because you're, you know, you're not speaking a different language. You're communicating it in a way that others haven't already seen. So mm-hmm. with each of these, it, it it does. I mean, there's only only so many ways you can say it, right? Like at some point, we're going to get to or to this least, plateau. So it seems. So it seems, right? I I mean, when whenever I read these, I'm like, man, like these people are so much better at explaining than I am. You know, like. <laughs> I wish I could explain things that well. <laughs> I don't know what it is, but maybe it's because we're almost like too like ingrained in it. Maybe we all just need too to like go to away it. for like a year and come back with fresh. You know, it, it 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 it's so strange. It's like all the things they say. I'm like, yeah, that's what I've been thinking. <laughs> I just haven't articulated the- it nearly as well. It's uh, it's humbling and cool. <laughs> Because at least the arguments are out there, so you can you can start borrowing them now. Yeah, and I mean, I guess the other the other aspect of this is that in each industry, 
different people are looked to as the global authorities, right? Mm -hmm. um, when this letter came out, I started noticing that all of my former colleagues in the, the shipbuilding um, and offshore industry, they all started reaching out about Bitcoin. It was yeah. now on their radar. And, you know, obviously Elon Musk has his cult following and Michael Saylor has, I think, truly tapped into the, uh, the ability to gain positive affirmation through tweeting about Bitcoin. But, you know, there's the, each of these industry leaders as they come out with these, uh, these glowing letters or, you know, just even so much as a, a positive mention publicly, uh, it, you know, it, it does capture a little bit of a new audience, I guess. I mean, yep. when you were reading this letter, like what was the, what was your biggest takeaway? Like wh what was the thing that was different in this one that stood out the most to you? I mean, I love how he tackled the, the ESG question, right? And it, obviously this is something close to my heart because I've been sort of fronting this, this particular angle of the question. And this letter just drove home something that I've been thinking for quite some time now that like the argument that I've been putting forward is kind of like parking up the wrong tree or it. It's just not the it's not the the most important argument. The the renewables penetration of Bitcoin is interesting because it is much higher than in the rest of the uh, the rest of the industries globally. But that's not the real question, though. the The real question is: Is Bitcoin useful? And if it is useful, is it worth the price that we're paying for it? And the answer to that is self-evidently yes, because we are paying for it, are we not? And so by that, we've already made that calculation. And the way that he put it, you know, when, when he said that either Bitcoin is useless and a bubble, and in which case it will die and go away and take its energy problem with it, right? Or... It's actually extremely useful, more useful than its predecessors, and is therefore worth whatever energy cost it brings with it. I mean, you can't argue with that. Like that is that is the truth. It's like this is all about subjective value judgment. Um, Bitcoin's users believe that what they're paying in terms of the electricity cost is worth it in terms of the services that Bitcoin renders back at them. Um, freedom, censorship resistance, the inability to be diluted out of your monetary holdings. All of these services are very real. They're very valuable and you can't get them anywhere else. And the cost is therefore something that we're willing to pay. And some people are willing to pay more than others because people's situations differ. You know, when you literally have no alternative, which is the case in a large chunk of the world, you literally have no alternative to get these right. uh, services that like you're going to be willing to pay quite a lot. And like, who are we in our cushy Western existences to sit here and judge people whose circumstances we might never even understand. I mean, it's, it's like ridiculous, honestly. Um, and it's, it's very pretentious uh, to be like, oh, Bitcoin's so useless. Therefore, the energy expenditure is not worth it. It's like, well, that's just like your opinion, man. <laughs> <laughs> the fun conversations are going to come in 10 years when we get to go back to this moment and everyone who right now is talking about how important it was to have savings so that they can make it through this hard time, right? Mm -hmm. People who have fiat savings and they've touted that. I mean, I know, I know I have family members that they're like, oh, you know, it's okay. The hour is being cut because I've been saving for this rainy day, you know, mm -hmm. uh, fast forward 10 years, you know, it, I've been encouraging everyone just liquidate all your cash and put it in Bitcoin. Like there's no, <laughs> there's no better thing that you can do. Right. Uh, I'm excited 10 years from now to, to revisit those conversations. You know, Nick Carter has said this a couple of times now, whenever anyone's attacking, you know, Bitcoin in, in some way, shape or form with regards to the energy, it's really just an attack on non-state money, you know? Right. It's, and, it's the question of like, do we need this or do we not? 
Like, and if your opinion is that we don't need non-state money, it's like, okay, cool. Nice opinion. But okay. So now, but in that case, let's say, you know, Bitcoin is non-state money. Uh, sure. It can be a hedge against fiat. I mean, there's, there's plenty of ways of looking at it, but in reality, the more and more people who buy into the belief that Bitcoin is a store of value, a medium of exchange, I mean, it, it negatively impacts the government's ability to control people, right? Sure. There's, no, there's no two ways about it. Because if you control what people can spend money on, then you've got a level, level of control over their entire life. So as more of these large companies and, and major players step out and, and stand for Bitcoin, like at what point do the, all the governments just start collectively shitting their pants and, and try to go for the throat? Or do they just admit they've lost and start buying in? Well, it should be right about now, right? Um, the pants shitting, at least. Um, but the, like, I've, I've tried to game theoretically write this out, and every time, like, what I come to is that the optimal strategy is to relinquish control of money. Um, because if you don't, what you risk is that you spend a bunch of time and effort trying to control something others let it go and you get a huge flow due to regulatory arbitrage of money and know-how and people energy to those jurisdictions and you end up losing out and you've not only gained nothing you've you're worse off right and so who's going to want to be taking that chance i mean that's going to be the reason why this like isn't like straightforward to write out is that there are so many different countries and they're all in different situations, right? I mean, who's got the most to lose mm -hmm. from this? Well, we all know who. Um, who has the most to gain from having an independent non-state money system? Well, it's the small countries. <laughs> cough, cough, Norway, yes. cough, cough, right? Yeah. And yeah, I just really think it's in their best interest to let this go and as soon as enough small countries let it go as a bunch of them already are then it becomes a lot less tenable for the larger ones to to try and, and do something and you know this is also the you have a dilemma um on the coercive side here like if you are in the camp that you know believe that it's cool to force people to use a certain type of money because reasons if, even if you are in that camp and you know you're you're championing this type of approach like what do you like what do you do if you you put forward that approach and then you fail so then you've not only validated exactly the reason of existence of the system you've also admitted that it's a grave threat large enough that you're willing to expend <laughs> lots of money and energy trying to fight it and then you didn't manage to actually yeah. do it so then you look weak on top of it like that is i mean i wouldn't do that <laughs> that sounds really risky uh i'd 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 especially if you're the united states with the with the legacy that it has in terms of liberalism and freedom uh, I would go the other route and just be like, okay, we're going to willfully give this from us. It was a great power that we had, but we are so awesome and so freedom loving that we're going to let it go. Uh, and guess what? We're still going to come out on top because now we have sound money. Well, and you know, this is, this is a very important point. Obviously the people on top right now have the most to lose from a situation like this, whether it's US, China, Russia, you see countries like, I think it's Hungary that is accumulating a significant amount of Bitcoin. Uh, it started with seizure. I think so. I think it is Hungary. It's Hungary or Slovakia. Um, but I mean, Slovakia this sounds is, right. There you go. It could be. This is just a situation where you have, you have this power shift coming on mm -hmm. fast. I mean, mm -hmm. countries like Iran and Venezuela using it to skirt sanctions is one thing, but mm -hmm. in skirting these sanctions and accumulating Bitcoin, and allowing hash rate to come within their borders, it's, I mean, it's potentially shifting who holds the real power in the military industrial complex as well. And I think that's where, you know, in the United States, when you have private interests that are building these Bitcoin mining facilities, that's one thing that is starting to get talked about more and more now. I mean, it's obviously a profitable endeavor and that's why people do it. 
Um, but at the end of the day, I think the, the US and China and these other countries who are, you know, allowing Bitcoin mining to happen there are giving themselves the best opportunity to, even though the governments are lagging behind and, and you know, they've kind of got their, their head up their asses, um, they still could come out on top just because of the, the foresight of the people who are within the country. You know, that's the situation I think the U.S. finds itself in and why it's particularly pertinent for the U.S. to just let it go and let the let the culture that exists within the U.S., the entrepreneurial spirit and the industrial power that still remains, just do the rest. Um, you know, literally just let the market go and it will accrue a ton of value to the U.S. Um, just leave the dollar. It was nice while it lasted. Um, Bitcoin's great too. But Chris, what do, like what happens to the world without without like fiat? Like wh- how? I mean, they're not going to relinquish control. It, it, there's no way. Do I they mean, have any choice though? They have guns and tanks and armies. Yeah. Well, are, who are they going to use it on? Like their own people? I mean, it, it makes me wonder. I mean, yeah. there's some countries where I think we could agree that. One hundred percent, they'd use it on their people. Yeah, I know, um, but those are countries that we don't like to compare ourselves to. But at the end of the day, it's countries that we're supposedly better than. <laughs> we all, they, all governments do the same shit, right? Absolute power cor- corrupts absolutely. I mean, that's. But some of them have pretty strong restrictions on them, though, and the U.S. government has pretty strong restrictions on them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if if everyone colludes, it could it could be bad. Um, I don't, I don't know. Like as, Think about as the Bitcoin see, mold network. Well, I mean, look, you see, you see people that are living more with their hand out, right? That are looking for more from the government. Mm-hmm. And with each, with each pass, they're giving up more freedom. You know, I think that the one thing we all saw over the last 18 months is that people out of fear are willing to give up almost all of their free, free choice, mm. you know? So... If money is taken away from the governments, but they have the ability to control people, I, I, it's it's just it's this weird like from a game theory perspective, how does that play out? Like if you take away money and then governments can't incentivize people with money to give up their freedom, how are they able to control the population? I'm sure, I, they'll I find know. a way. I, yeah, well, so that's the thing is like I want to see Bitcoin succeed. I I want I'm obviously a Bitcoin bull. As I try to play this out in my head, it's. It's just really, it, I don't know. I, I think we're, we're, we're staring down the barrel of a very tumultuous 20 years. I agree. Where early adopters I think it's are, very hard to predict. And I don't yeah. think you should be like kicking yours. Um, I mean, I'm not pretending like I, I'm able to predict how this is all going to play out. I mean, I, none of us it's just have any ideas. Like, yeah, I mean, you, you know, know, that's why we do these thought experiments. Like, and we, we kick it back and forth and, you know, hopefully something interesting comes out of it. I think we all agree that they're not going to want to give up control. That is like, there's consensus. <laughs> no mm, one's going to want sure. to give up, up, up their favorite toy. Like, cause this is one of their favorite <laughs> toys. But I mean, there comes a time when you might not really have any alternative choice. Like the, there have been times throughout history where governments have been forced to give up their favorite toys. Like think about the, think about the, the power of the centralized press before the invention of printing press, when the church controlled sure. everything that was written, everything that was written by anyone was written by someone in the church and it was under their control. Along comes the printing press. I'm sure they would have loved to, you know, retain that control, but with this new technology, that's just not feasible anymore like you could have fought it you could have worked really hard to like and i mean there were places that did right obviously like kings and dukes and whatever don't want to give up this this power or or you know the pope or whoever it is right um but at the end of the day it becomes too expensive to fight it and then once you do give it up it actually spurs on this incredible revolution that ends up bringing your even as the king or whatever it brings your power and and your living standards up to states that weren't even possible before so i think this is just one of those things just give it up like you it's not going to be feasible to fight it and if you give it up it's going to make everybody better off including you I mean, relinquishing control, I guess, could 
it could make the ruling class better off as it has in the past. Like, I guess I could see that. If it improves right. the global living standard, if we unlock new economic growth, if we unleash the technological spirit. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Okay, so before we wrap things up, you, I mean, you're constantly looking at all areas of the space. Um, and I know we, we get to chat fairly frequently now, which is kind of nice. Thanks to, to Amanda and her Mining Monday conversations. Hmm. Right now, as you're looking at the next six months of the year, what, I mean, what, what has you the most excited about this space? Uh, I'm pretty excited about what's happening in Lightning right now. And, and that is coming from someone who's had only terrible experiences with Lightning. I've complained about this on Twitter before, but, but I see other people having really good experiences <laughs> and I know what the potential is. And if that can be unleashed, it would be fantastic. Um, from, a, from a business perspective, um, I mean, US ETFs is a big deal, right? Um, if they're ever going to happen, mm -hmm. it's got to be this year. The proposition coming out of Fidelity was awesome. I mean, even the name, everything was just cool. Yeah, it was pretty strong. metrics too. I mean, yeah. oh man, it's just so awesome. It's like everything they do is right. That's a, that's a big potential catalyst. I mean, some of the stuff that we've seen though over these, it's been a weird like few weeks actually. Uh, this type of news coming out like two months ago, Right. We lit a rocket under everything, um, but now we're right. we're just like stuck in this like holding pattern. Yeah, it's uh, it, it's hard to pick like a single thing. There's so much building that needs to happen still. I mean, you know how, what it's like just interacting with Bitcoin raw. Mm -hmm. It's terrifying. Yeah. <laughs> um, it is. And if you know, even for Lightning, like if you want all the nice things, like you know, if you want to run your own node and get routing fees and connect it to like a mobile device. It's just, shit just isn't there yet. And then you got to rely on other types of services, which I'm still a little skeptical too. Yeah. There's just so much weird shit going on too. Like this whole NFT thing is just bothering me. <laughs> it does. Okay, so I have, I have mixed feelings about NFTs. Um, I like art, right? Like I enjoy art and I can see, I mean, I could see how it could be cool to like hang a digital image, uh, or basically a, a framed GIF. If you want to look at it like that, I could see how that, that has some appeal. What's stopping you? <laughs> well, okay. So, so the other aspect is the, the nature of making sure that the artists are rewarded, you know, like the idea that like, you know, Picasso, Van Gogh, all of these guys, they really didn't experience their success. It was all posthumous that, that they were celebrated. Um, so, I mean, you know, I've got friends who are, who are artists and who are benefiting from this. So I, I can see it from that point of view. Yeah. I don't, I mean, I don't want to take away from that. Obviously I want artists to get paid too. And like art and market forces are, are is already such a, a weird and inefficient mix that, yeah. I mean, if we can funnel, yeah. if we can funnel as much Ethereum as possible to artists, like I'm all for it. <laughs> I mean, I think that the, the, this whole thing just stems from the fact that there's, uh, I mean, too much money and too much time in people's hands. Like, I, I think that we're you know, contrary to what a lot of people say about society. I mean, right now it just seems like people are spending money on the dumbest shit. Um, yeah. just in general, I mean, NFTs aside, I mean, the, there was the Pokemon craze that went on for a while. And my whole thing is like, you know, you look at these collectors who are selling these Pokemon cards for like hundreds of thousands of dollars. And I mean, big ups to them, happy that they're able to see a return on that, you know, 50 cents that they spent on those cards. Uh, but I always think about like, who's on the other side of that trade? Like who's paying a hundred thousand dollars for a, like a, a piece of cardboard that I mean, really, I mean, it has that hundred thousand dollars value, but like, what are you going to do with it? What are you going to do? Like, you're, like, is that your crowning achievement? Are you going to put that on the mantle? If you're well, I mean, Charizard card money has diminishing marginal utility as well, right? Uh, true. Maybe it's true. maybe it's less diminishing than any other good. It's not crazy. 
yeah but at the end of the day it's like what are you going to do with even more money <laughs> just get a really slick pokemon card you know what we should do with it is we should build another fab stateside that's what we should do with society's money build some more silicon generation maybe that's what i'm most excited about is actually getting some bitcoin like chip fabrication stateside if that's ever possible that would be pretty well, intel cool. just announced that they're going to open up right they're going to open up their their production capabilities to more clients but i don't i mean i don't know that bitcoin miners will see any of that i think that's all gonna you know be for for these american companies that are going to eventually be prohibited from procuring chips from outside mm-hmm. of the u.s you know i think that's just like an actual security that's waiting to happen yeah yeah no um i mean last question that i have for you before we wrap things up mm-hmm. is this a super cycle is this it i mean are we are we no. now getting to the point where it's it's up only but incrementally I mean, nah, are you going to see so. it dip down again? Uh, yeah, I, I suspect we'll see a pretty close um, analogous movement to last time with like, you know, another bubble top and like a bust and a long shakeout. The interesting question this time is that so last time difficulty was able to catch up to the price within a year. I don't even know that that's going to be possible this time even if we have like a really fat retrace because the i mean the production capacity isn't hasn't scaled to the to the increases of the bitcoin price this time around i mean it might be a mining profitability super cycle (laughs) that i would agree with you on but like i find it very hard to see how we're going to be able to produce enough chips to to catch up even you know say that we say that we went to like 150 and then took a a dump back to like 60 you know even then yeah. in 2 years we wouldn't be able to have enough chips to catch up to the difficulty i think more or less what i think okay so bitcoin mining equipment is priced by the manufacturers generally for a, a nine to 11 month break-even point, right? Mm-hmm. But the fact that the price, at least right now on the way up, is correlated to the price of Bitcoin, I think we will see a decoupling of that movement as the market retraces because of the scarcity. So we may see these ASICs, let's say we run to 100K, the ASICs are going to be you know, $25,000, $30,000 in ASIC. Okay. Now, when the move down occurs, if let's say it's only a return to 60 or it's only a return to 70, I don't think we'll see the ASIC prices drop That's with any level of significance. Uh, we just, we, we won't because there just aren't any more of them. Mm-hmm. And I mean, frankly speaking, although the price does fluctuate with the price of Bitcoin, this is one of the only industries where you can produce a commodity and you have that fast of a turnaround, like a, a return on your initial investment. Like mm-hmm. if you're mining corn and you buy a combine, probably not going to pay that off in a year. Right. It's right. going to take you a, a few years. So it would only make sense for these mining machines to eventually get to a break even point where we're in like the, the three to five year range. I think so that's you you, know, how you, the market You're saying will combine harvesters aren't priced on static days. <laughs> <laughs> no, John Deere just, re- they just get you up front. That's it. They, they lock you in for that five to six years and, and you're stuck. Uh, but I mean, it's got to happen that way unless there is another fab that comes online. It, it's, you yeah. Know, you look now right. and all of these. They're all sold out through 2022. It's that that is incredible. Like that is mind blowing. And and you know the the space that they've been allocated, it just isn't enough to catch up like anytime soon. So like, what does that mean? I mean, there's a huge gap in the market. Yeah, the, it means no price insensitive new coins are coming that need to be sold effectively because margins are correct. what like eighty percent and. Yeah. And improving. <laughs> well, and I mean, there's so many financial services now for miners that they don't have to sell to cover any of their OPEX anymore either. If you've got a functioning Bitcoin mining facility and you're profitable, there will always be people who will lend you money now and you don't, you don't need your bit to sell your Bitcoin to float anymore. I mean, we're, we're seeing this, right? The, the sell side is, is gone. The supply of Bitcoin being openly sold, all, all we're seeing now is Bitcoin moving off of exchanges, not going to it. I know it's like that combined with the complete non-necessity of miners to sell. I mean, the supply squeeze is ridiculous. I think, I mean, obviously Compass's thesis is built on this, but, you know, playing in the, the smaller 
the smaller spaces where we see the most opportunity for miners, right? Because although a, a large public public company can't source, you know, thousands, you can source a hundred, but you know, how sensitive are you to price? I mean, a lot of these large miners, they want deals and there aren't deals to be had. You know, I mean, we were talking to Bitmain. So Bitmain rolled out their VIP program and the, like they let people know on Thursday that they needed to put a, you know, a significant $41 million deposit down five days later. Right. <laughs> and, and really it was, it was three business days. So they're, they were specifically targeting through that program, you know, long-term institutional players. And then what they're going to do is they're going to release these small monthly uh, allotments to the open market. It's going to give them the ability to capitalize on that margin as opposed to some of the distributors. But it's also going to provide an, a nice opportunity for small miners to get involved, you know, where, I mean, hey, look, if you're going to pay 10000 for a machine that you'll see a return on in a year, if you just want to get, get started, it, it makes sense. So it will, be, it will be very interesting to see how over 2022... I mean, there just has to be somebody that steps up. Like, it's, it's hard for me to imagine that there's so much money being left on the table that no one is stepping up and, and trying to grab at. Right. Because if, if we're right in that the price retrace that we would be necessary to, to bring difficulty in line with price, again, if that drop is so large that it becomes just completely unrealistic and mining remains even if not ultra profitable, but like very profitable over a long enough time, then the market's going to push more and more fab space into the hands of the miners. And I mean, talk about the FUD that we're going to get when everybody's cell phone is all of a sudden like twice as expensive because we're diverting all the silicon to like mine Bitcoin. I mean, look, it's already happening with the, the global PlayStation shortage. <laughs> the PlayStation and Xbox, I think, is hitting people uh, right where it hurts. Uh, everyone's stuck at home. They've all wanted these new consoles, and they can't have them. They're just well, there aren't good. enough I hear chips available. A waste. <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely boiling the oceans. Uh, well, look, Chris. On that note, I'll uh, we'll go ahead and wrap things up here, man. This is a this was a very fun conversation. Um, it's great to have you on and get to chat with you again. Thanks for having me. I, I had a lot of fun. That's a wrap for us at the Compass Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you did, please subscribe and consider leaving us a five-star review on your preferred listening platform. Thanks again, everyone. The thoughts and opinions expressed by the hosts and guests on the Compass Podcast are their own and do not represent the opinions of Compass Mining, Inc. None of this content should be considered financial advice.